Welcome to Unframed, a podcast which hosts talks and conversations about South African art and artists. I am your host, Anthea Pockroy. This episode is a talk that I recorded as part of Latitude's Art Fair last month in September 2019. This informal panel discussion, which was hosted by the brilliant Michelle Constant, is entitled How to Change the Art World in Two Hours. Thirteen artists, curators, gallerists, critics and arts advocates were invited to respond to this provocation. Each speaker had five minutes to champion their utopian wishes or practical solutions to make the art world a more supportive, equal and engaged space. Thank you to Latitude's Art Fair for allowing me to record this talk and to publish it on the Unframed platform. Enjoy listening to this wonderfully interesting and collaborative presentation. The topic is how to change the art world in two hours. I wonder whether we'll manage that. But anyway, um, Michelle will contextualize the topic today and she's going to be the host for this morning. And um, thank you so much, SA Mint, for uh, sponsoring and funding this session. Thank you. Could we just give a big clap of hands to that? Um, and I look forward to listening to all of you because we looked at everybody that has, um, you know, a say, the ecosystem of the art world. And, um, well, thank you. Thank you. Michelle, over to you. Uh, um, you just need to be aware that we are going to, in fact, ask uh, Mukatsi to just come and give us a little insight as well into the art fair. But let me just frame everything for you while we crack off. This is not a panel discussion. And the reason that we're doing it this way is because there is nothing worse in many ways than six people on the stage telling us what most of us know and also assuming that they know better. So we are going to shift and change the process completely. My name, by the way, is Michelle Constant. I am not an artist. I am not a curator. I am very interested in the art world, I buy a lot of art, but I'm sort of an outsider in, in the real sense. So all of you terrified the hell out of me, but nevertheless, it's very exciting. So the topic, how to change the art world in two hours. I must admit I didn't choose the topic, but I think it's a damn fine one because I think it's virtually impossible. And if we come to an answer at the end of it, I'll really be delighted and think, fuck, the art world's really smart. You know, it'll really be exciting. So we've got a bunch of speakers here. In fact, more than, in fact, some of them are sitting right there. And they're going to be coming on as well. So we've got probably about 13, 14 speakers. We've also got 13, 14 speakers who are audience. And we're allowed to mix it and match it as we like. We've specifically chosen not to have people's bios being read out. Because if you don't know who they are, well, hell, bummer. But if you do know who they are, fantastic. And if you don't know, their name is on the board, but that's it. Otherwise, we're going to be reading arm-length CVs, which are actually fantastic for some of you and not so great for others. So many of you today, and we've asked each speaker to speak for five minutes exactly. And if you're in the audience and they go over five minutes, you are allowed to put up your hand and go, five, you're out as loudly as you want and as profusely as you want, you're allowed to drag them from the stage. The only person you may not drag is Professor Patika Ntuli because he is a real gentleman and that would just be inappropriate. Okay. So the thing that's quite, 
quite clear, though, is that many of you will have extremely different perspectives. And all that we would ask is that whilst you may disagree with one another, and I'm sure you do disagree with one another a lot, your artists and curators and things, but that you do it with civility. You may not respect what people say, but you respect them just as human beings and as people. I'm suggesting that would be very nice. Okay. Um, and I do say that because we, we've had a couple of uh, panels and facilitations recently, not in the art sector, but where things really actually become quite uncomfortable because it is kind of like playing the man and not the ball, and I think South Africans are quite good at that often. So, many of you, I have to say, demonstrate this extraordinary term, the generalist, or as we've also heard, the slashy. So, and, and it's in the most extraordinary ways. In fact, when you read the bios of all the speakers, there are curators who are artists, artists who are activists, obviously, uh, gallerists who are academics, garrulous academics as well, designers who are consultants, artists who are journalists. And it's a demonstration of range that I believe we should draw on and really, really try to use in the next two hours. And before we crack in, I just wanted to say one more thing. There was a really interesting article by a woman called Colleen Magna. She works for a company called Rios. Rios worked with Adam Cahan, who wrote a wonderful book called Collaborating with the Enemy. And well worth reading if you're interested in negotiating with people you can't stand. So one of the things she wrote was, as important and complex as this sector-specific collaboration is, there is still a fundamental risk in pursuing only an approach of talking to people in your industry or sector to navigate your future. The risk, or trap, is that you assume how others perceive your value. So that all a sector needs to do in that case is offer and articulate this value through a set of coherent plans. We are in a time of a system with wide disruptions and we need to try and open the discussion across the sectors. So the majority of you, probably the most of you, are people who work in the art sector but it would be interesting for you to apply the conversation as well more broadly across sectors if you are able. So the objective, as I said, is to have fun, to be disruptive. I hate that word, but nevertheless, to challenge the format of panels and interactions and plant the seeds for the journey forward. Um, I've heard that some of you have a manifesto, some of you have a thesis, and others felt like you could change the art world in one minute, let alone two hours. Either way, the floor is going to be yours. If you feel strongly that you want to get up and talk and you're not on the list, you're also welcome to do that. And uh, we have allocated slots throughout the time. There's also coffee. Is there popcorn? <laughs> I had actually asked for popcorn. I'm sorry, guys. Um, I really did. So next time, I will try and organize popcorn. Finally, um, it would be fun to identify a few points that we could take forward so that this is not just a talk shop and a panel discussion. And the most final thing, we are testing this. We are allowed to fail because, frankly, we know we can succeed in all the other ways, and that's just boring. So let's test ourselves. Let's see how we take this forward. On that note, Sean O'Toole, I'm going to invite you up onto the stage. Oh, there's no chair, by the way, so because we thought we, if we have a row of chairs, it's going to be tedious as hell. So you're welcome to stand, you're welcome to sit, you can sit on the edge of a chair, 
You can do an improvisational dance while you do it. You can do it whichever way you like. Just do it. And I'm not sponsored by Nike. Sean, there's a little clock here. You see it. Tick tock, tick tock. On your marks, get set, go. How are we changing the world in two hours? We change it, um, I think, through our language. And that's kind of an obvious statement for a journalist, an editor, an art critic, slash, slash, slash. So two words I want you to remember, or two and a half, or two plus a phrase, or no, one plus a phrase. So it's ecology and sudden urbanism. So in the little package that explained this, it spoke about this thing we inhabit as an art world. Um, there's other ways of describing it. Sometimes you hear people say the art scene, which is sort of very gossipy. It sort of evokes the world of Tom Wolfe and Lynn Sampson. So we, it's just a scene and we're up to pastiche because we're just an accumulation of social manners. Um, another one is the art economy. I hate that. It reduces everything to a financial transaction. So I like to think of an art ecology it comes from a, zo a zoologist coined it, and it's to speak about both an organic and inorganic world that we inhabit. I think there's a usefulness there that I find, because you can almost probe the health of our art ecology. And it connects, the word sort of connects to a larger world that's also in crisis. Um, why I also like the word ecology and this idea of it being able to encompass the organic, my body, and the inorganic, the oxygen that's around us, is it sort of touches on things that I've been writing about, which, to use a kind of almost hackneyed phrase, is to do with the global south and cities in the global south. And there's a remarkable constellation or assembly or loose association of writers that are really thinking about sudden urbanism. And, you know, it's important to recognize that the art world or ecology that we're involved in is overridingly urban. And it's an expression of our urban condition. Um, and so there's a lot of really interesting writers, Abdu, Malik Simone, uh, Philip de Ananya Roy, Gautam Ban, in Cape Town, Edgar Pitzer, who are kind of trying to understand the, your clock's gone off, the granular expressions <laughs> of, of the city. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and there's a real urgency to kind of develop a language to understand what is the placeness of where we are from. It's not about grand ideologies of class or race, but it's really about a kind of phenomenology of place and what can you learn when you pay attention to place, particularly peripheral places, not these very formalized environments that we are in, like Santon. And, you know, I'm sorry to say it, but the art fair is an expression of a very formalized art world too. But if you look at particularly the, what's coming out of, bubbling up out of southern urban theory, is this idea of precarity, contingency, informality, and the ability of people that live in peripheries to get by despite lack. 
And there's a certain energetics in that theory that, or discourse or thinking that I think the art world could tap into, partly because it also reorientates who you can look at and see really interesting practices. So when I talk of interesting practices, I think of a Congolese dancer, Faustin Linyakula. He won uh, the Prince Klaus Prize. He was going to build an art school in Kisangani. Instead, he built a water treatment facility and then parked a little art school within it so that art was normalized. It's part of a basic service industry. Another example would be, and it might be surprising, Chicago, Theaster Gates and his Dorchester projects working in the South Side because the idea of the global South isn't necessarily about Africa. There's a certain peripheralness and the way we inhabit the world that is everywhere. So last person is Raul Cardenas from Toro Lab in Tijuana. He said a wonderful thing. Um, he said, the time of protest is over. What is your proposal? So to 20, in 20 seconds, about 15 years ago, Lesejo Rampolakeng got up on stage and said, we don't have a culture of criticism, just a culture of bitching. I know your critique. What is your proposal? Thank you. Okay, Sean O'Toole for president. Jeez, that was... I think maybe what's quite interesting about what Sean's talking about is that whole sudden urbanism. There's a big conversation, I don't know if you guys are aware of it, around ABCD, asset-based community development, which is around this idea that wherever a community is positioned, it, that you look at the assets as opposed to the negatives. So it's what does someone have wherever they are. And there's some really, really interesting writing around it, so it's well worth your looking out for that. The other part of that conversation is that there is a huge um, talk to the centre. We're constantly aware of the centre. We assume that the centre is the Santon, etc., etc., and that the outreach is that way. But in fact, um, what we, we're reading now is that the centre is here and that we are on the periphery. So what does that mean if we are on the periphery here and the centre is somewhere else for someone else? So, great. Anybody want to comment on Sean or we hold until a little bit later? Yeah. No, it's not loud enough. <laughs> you wish. Yes. Sorry, Les Con, hi, from ArtSource. Sean, I'd like to comment on your use of ecology and just to say that um, when I speak and when we run our training sessions, we have a whole session on the ecosystem and we talk about the art ecosystem. And an ecosystem is based on interdependence and that if one element of the ecosystem is missing, then the whole ecosystem goes out of kilter. And I think to some extent that's sort of what you're referring to. So I love that you picked up on, on that, that we are all actually in our so-called art world or whatever, dependent on each other and should actually be collaborating, which I'm afraid is a sad non-reality. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to ask Mike Mavura, all the way from Stellenbosch, to join us up next. Now, the great big challenge, of course, about this is that if we decide to shift people around, Mike Mavura could become Zen Marie, who could become so-and-so, who could, but nevertheless, we're going to give it a shot. Mike Mavura, over to you. Okay, Your great. Thank you. Um, I think something happened uh, that is very interesting yesterday in Santon with the protesters who came to shut down Santon 
and ask corporate South Africa about their stance on gender-based violence uh, in South Africa. And I think corporate South Africa was actually caught a little bit unawares, um, and they were asking themselves, what is this got to do with us? And I think for us and for, for most other sectors, this is actually a wake-up call. Um, and I think we need to reimagine, especially the, the arts sector, um, our role in society and maybe supplement uh, the cool in us as cultural producers with another role as, um, um, as, as actually uh, as civil servants who place uh, creativity and creative thinking at the service of uh, society. Because if you look at our sector, we've got artists, writers, curators, uh, uh, critics who are actually imbued with critical thinking skills and creative skills which we can use to actually place at the service of society. And there's a precedent to this. If you actually look at what happened in Colombia with Antanas Mokas, for example, when he became mayor, Bogota was a city that was on the brink of collapse. And you turned the whole city into a laboratory, experimenting with creative skills and creativity. Um, I can give an example of how he fired, for example, 420 traffic, uh, corrupt traffic uh, officers and hired 420 mime artists and clowns uh, <laughs> to follow around people who did uh, traffic violations because as it turned out, uh, Colombians feared public ridicule than paying fines. So these are some of the ways in which we can, you know, start to reimagine uh, our context and how we can use the skills that we have um, as, as artists, as creatives, as people in them in the creative sector to actually place these skills at the service of society. Um, and I think this is interesting. Done. Done. <laughs> wow. Now there's really time to ask you questions, Good. seeing as you're here. Mike. Yeah. Stellenbosch Triennale. How does one say that word? You guys have to, is it Biennale, Triennale, or Triennale, Biennale? So how do I say it? Valerie, please. Please. I know you're snapping with uh, joy, but how do we say this? Well, no, but if this one's written triennale, but if it was a triennial, then it wouldn't have an E at the end. That's it. So triennial? No, no this one's triennale because it has an E at the end. Triennial spelled differently. Yeah. Yeah, the one's got two L's, doesn't it? Oh, all right, there we go. You see, I'm really not part of your world. <laughs> well, it comes from Stellenbosch. The Triennale. <laughs> there we go. We're all going to be part of the Stellenbosch Triennale. Give us a quick insight. Um, I think we are trying to use some of these uh, things that I've been talking about to use creativity at the service of society. So we are trying to tell a new story about Stellenbosch. You know, if, if you ask the audience what do they think about Stellenbosch, everybody has got a different idea of what Stellenbosch is. They're all going to quote Stellenbosch Mafia, the book. Exactly, exactly. So we're trying to tell a new story by using um, um, art and creativity. We want to really place Stellenbosch as... Stellenbosch, first and foremost, is an African city. You know, it's part of Africa. So we want to tap into what is happening into the contemporary art scene on the continent and really bring the best of what is happening to Stellenbosch. We look forward to seeing it. Yeah. Mark Mavura, thanks very much. Thank we you. appreciate it. Thank you. The one thing that strikes me so far really about our speakers is this idea of storytelling and how stories just make things so much more prescient and maybe more pertinent as well. Now, 
there was an interesting article that Sean wrote um, a while back, which he spoke, and he's used the term um, South Africa's increasingly privatized art world. Um, and I think that what it does talk to is this incredible tension in our art world and in the world between revenue and purpose and whether to collide or elide in some cases. And I would really like to invite our next speaker, who has in fact sponsored this event, Sbongile Metzing. Thank you so much for joining us from the SA Mint. And we wouldn't be here drinking coffee, please. If you feel like you need to get up and have a coffee, you're welcome to do so, to just G up a bit. Spongli, thanks so much for joining thanks, us. Michelle. Okay, so my proposition is very simple. Um, art is important for business. And art, the relationship between art and business, is a really valuable one. Um, Gone are the days where uh, businesses were solely focused on, you know, financials as as um, uh, the one key measure of performance. We talk about the triple bottom line. We um, are today are measured on our contribution to society, to the environment, and of course, um, profits will always be important. But how art is meaningful to us businesses is, um, especially today, especially in um, the services industry, is we need art for creativity. We live in a world um, that is increasingly dependent on innovation, um, a very tech-focused world where creative thinking, innovation is um, critical. Um, we need to also consider the, the kinds of people, so along with technical skills, we're increasingly looking to employ and engage with um, creative minds. I'm often reminded about uh, of um, Prof Chilisi, uh, the vice chancellor at UJ, who was mm -hmm. reflecting on the topic of, I think he was speaking on AI um, in the engineering faculty, about how his students had built this model that was really smart. I think it was voice prompted. But because it was coded in English, um, the minute uh, you spoke to it in class, I couldn't decipher anything because, you know, there was no thinking along linguistics and picking up certain sounds and different tones. So creati creativity and um, different ways of thinking and the... I think the perspective that artists bring into our businesses and how we do things is really critical. Um, I'm sorry, Sam, I'm not panting the mint. <laughs> and Usman. But yeah, obviously we're sponsoring the event. We do partner with um, artists. We produce coins. I mean, our prim primary uh, mandate is to produce currency, but we also make collectible coins we, um, on which we depend a lot on um, our collaborations with artists to produce beautiful products. So yeah, art is important for business. Maybe you can just briefly give us uh, some of the artists that you worked with now in the fantastic yes. 25 yes, years. Yes, yes, mm. yes. So yeah. we're celebrating 25 years of democracy this year, and we have partnered with six artists. We've got Sean Gaylord, we have Lady Scully, um, who's been all over the media. We've got Nell Mashangu. Um, we have Rusty Nails. So also, we, we've partnered with a diverse array of artists, from a tattoo artist to an architect, um, to interpret these themes in their own way. And the, this is the kind of thinking that we rely on, that our businesses thrive on. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks very, very Thank much you. for joining Thank us. Thank you very much. <laughs> 
It is a challenge. It is a kind of conversation that we do um, all raise again and again, the relationship between business and the arts. And I'm certainly one who has been a bit kind of pro the business side of things. But I do think that there's an opportunity with regards to this idea of shared value. More and more and more, that is a conversation that is happening in the business world and where we see that the engagement is one that has to work both ways. Um, I think my, my own personal feeling about it may have changed over a short while. Valerie. Valerie Kabov. Harare First Floor Gallery. Now, I read the most extraordinary article on the demise of real art criticism and written by Valerie. It, was, it really was possibly one of the most disturbing articles because I kind of thought I might be one of those populist people that just tweets fabulous things about everybody because I like them or whatever. But you did raise this incredible question, Valerie, about, and you quoted James Elkins, the flight from judgment and the attraction of descriptions. And I think we have got to the point where we're constantly describing the beauty of things or whatever, but never doing what many of our journalists should be doing. And there is a question there, because that is a question about what the media is doing with the arts as well. And we could go into a whole space around that huge thing as well. So, Valerie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks very much, but you kind of killed my whole... Oh. presentation <laughs> because I was going to start well this you know to address the question how you know you know make one issue that would change the art world and I was going to say well down with capitalism um, that would that would that would really achieve a profound amount of change on so many levels it would cure a lot of problems uh, so but I think to take a step away from it and uh, and it is uh, indirectly related to I guess the flight from judgment as all of my thinking is, is, is that I really, the way I would change the art world is I would, I would really love for all of us in the industry to get humble. <laughs> and by humble, I mean remove the fucking ego from the intermediaries, right? I am, as a practitioner, uh, so, I mean, I'm, all, I'm not a slashy and I'm not a generalist, I'm a polymath. So I'm bringing an ego into that right now very self-consciously. But my background is I'm a lawyer, I'm an economist, I'm an art historian. I've lived and worked in uh, Moscow and London and Paris, so I don't have a South-centric uh, position. I, I operate from a, the world. The, the world is a globe, and any point can be a center if you choose it to be. Um, but humility is crucial because we're all intermediaries. None of us... All of us should be so lucky to be footnotes in history because the only people who are important in the art world are artists. And they've been around for hundreds of thousands of years. They've been around as long as civilization. None of us are important. They will continue to be whether or not there's capital. They will continue to be whether or not there are collectors because that's what humans do. A lot of the problems we see in the business and, you know, and Sean has alluded to it, and a lot of the problems we have in modeling and the lack of innovation is, the attached, is, is driven by ego, is the fact that there's a competitiveness and an imaginary value attached to it that is, that is described by ego. A lot of the pricing that is out of control in the market today is driven by vanity and appearances and ego rather than, uh, which, which, is, which, is, which is actually sort of fueled by words Right, not to, 
and words words that lack judgment, but words that are driven by the market and the culture of celebrity, which again goes mm. to ego. We're not concerned with history. We're not concerned with merit. We're concerned with ego. Um, and the other way that we and the inflation of the value of art, actually. So the other way that the humility is really crucial is that we are a lot of young artists that we that I speak to seem to imagine that they actually can drive major social change. Fuck that. <laughs> like, art does not work like that. If you can, if you want to be an activist, go on the street like people did yesterday. That's, that's what protest is. When you're selling an artwork to somebody who's a member of the 1%, you're never changing the world. That's not how art works. If you can change one person's life with your work, that is already a major gift, right? So humility is important at every stage of our profession because it's a lack of humility that stops us from collaborating. So I am a major, you know, I am extremely, extremely conscious of how unimportant I am in what I do. And the only way that I can make a contribution is to support and give a you know, give opportunities to artists in the best way I can because they're the ones who are making and writing history, but they have to understand how they're doing it and they have to be actually given the space and protection from uh, the culture of celebrity, the culture of the market, which has, which has stopped being, which lives in the post-truth world, which lives in a world that has forgotten art history entirely because everyone seems to operate in a world that was seems to have been invented yesterday and no one, you know, and no, everyone imagines that actually I'll go against innovation, that no one is standing on the shoulders of giants, that the new gimmick is what makes it. And yet we're part of a history that is 100,000 years old. We're not doing anything new. We're just trying to speak to our world in the best way we can and do things that are beautiful and important and remind people that what it is to be human and what it is to be free, right, in a very small way. Thank you. Valerie, um, I'm going to give you, I want to give you a few more minutes to just talk about collaboration in the current climate. Um, and also, can I ask you to hold the mic a little bit closer, all sure. speakers, because we are, in fact, recording this. All right. Um, collaboration. So, I mean, for me, collaboration is necessary. I, I, am, I am nobody without relationships. Everything that we did as First Floor Gallery Harari, we started on a budget of $100, 50 of which went for painting the walls white and 50 of which went for beer for the opening. And there was like, that was a very important split. And that's part of collaboration because you need to keep people happy. Everything we've achieved has been through supporting each other. We are currently... Uh, and, and we're driven, and, and it's really, it's part of, I mean, there's a, a, we have a motto at the gallery that is, you know, which is an African proverb, that is that if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. That is actually a driving, it's a driving ethos of how we do everything. And, uh, and it also means that you're working on a solid foundation. In 2016, we founded... Um, with a number of other galleries, the Emerging African Art Galleries Association, again, in, intended to support um, development uh, of other galleries on the continent, right, to broaden the sector, because the art world and the art market is a very big place. It's not a tiny place concentrated in Santon. Uh, 
or in Cape Town. It just isn't. It's like it's a billion, billion dollar industry This and that can grow and is growing all the time. There's And so sharing actually develops the market and creates the opportunities. So collaboration is normal. That's how humans survive. I would also like just make a tiny point to Sean's allusion uh, to the Colombian project. That's like Colombia and South America is an incredible, an incredible uh, example of of philosophy of decolonial philosophy and also philosophy of collaborative action and social engagement of the arts. But like, I mean, I've been to Colombia and I've seen. all right, sorry, Mike, sorry, but, but you mentioned somebody about South America. Yeah, right. And, uh, but I, I believe that uh, we in Africa need to develop our own projects that are responsive to our own cultural conditions because uh, a lot of the things that are driven, you know, I know that, like, in, somebody mentioned Prince, Prince Klaus, right? Uh, uh, like, Dutch people telling, you know, I've, I've experienced Dutch people imposing imposing models that were taken from one region onto another region and then trying to enforce them while sitting in Herengracht, and it doesn't work. In Africa, we have, and I've had to learn this by, you know, living in Zimbabwe, you, you need to absorb, you need to learn, you need to listen, you need to understand that culture operates and, in, and the role of individual in a culture operates differently. What works in one place will not work in another and you need to. And what we've worked in the Festival Gallery is developing what we call an environmentally responsive development model for, for the arts in a way which responds to the local condition with an understanding of the local needs and the local experience. So, and that's also collaboration. Thank you. Thank you, Valerie. I also have to say thank you for taking Pebble Fatso because we love his work. It's, he's, I don't know. I, I, I do. I, I do have a lot of his work. I have his work. Yeah. So is there anybody who wants to jump in from the audience? I feel like we've had quite a few speakers and the time is now to hand over to you. Who wants to comment? Anybody who's got like a point of differentiation, a point of, or have you been silenced completely? Just one question. It's Bongile from the Manit side. Uh, I think what changed the art world in uh, Europe during the Renaissance was the Medici Bank. It was the bankers that went after the artists. How do you address the question of uh, the mental sterility of the corporate sector in South Africa? It's up to you guys to answer it. You can ask the question. Anybody want to answer? Um, if I can defend the corporates, I wouldn't say that they're entirely bereft or <laughs> sterile. If you go back to the 90s and Billiton's very brave collection of uh, contemporary art when everyone else was looking at uh, early 20th century landscapes. And there, there are these little isolated flarings that we should acknowledge. I think the wholesale kind of um, demand for the demise of capitalism is also... I hasten to say, a bit naive. It's an imperative. (laughs) (laughs) As somebody who spent about 30 years in the corporate world, um, I I have seen collections in in corporates and, as you said, bulletin. And I was on a panel at the Joburg Art Gallery and I felt that, um, you know, how how can these, um, you know, 
especially state-owned in South Africa um, museums, how how can they they manage to um, because they are so uh, they're not really funded. They're short on 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 funding. So and how can ordinary people because see the collection that various corporates have out there and it would be best if um, the corporates collaborate with, with the mm. museums especially in this situation the Johannesburg Art Gallery and, and a place like Salem you know that collection is sitting there and, and perhaps have that um, um, yeah collaboration and, and lend or show, have an exhibition at the Joburg Art Gallery and then the marketing you know, the marketing and, and market it to the people so that they increase the audiences and people can get to see these collections and these art, art, artworks that are just sitting in, 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 in these corporates. MTN has got a collection and various other um, corporates that have those collections. It would really help for us to see those. I mean, I went, I was in, um, in Berlin and, um, and private, um, private collectors have these massive houses where they they would live on the you know the top floor and the three floors have their collection and it's open to the public to come and see these collections and yet and I've known of other collections out there that we have not seen that have just disappeared into private hands. So so let me give you an example because I I work at the SABC not full time in my playtime um, on a Saturday and a Sunday. And the SABC, to my mind, has one of the most comprehensive collections around. I, I think it's just extraordinary. And I love the fact that I can walk into the SABC anytime and see absolutely amazing work. But in the last couple of months, there has been a month or so where my salary got, um, was, let's just say, slightly slower on arriving in my bank account than could have been. And which is okay for me because it's my playtime, but for people who it's like really the work, then you start to wonder and you start to say, is it important to have that art collection on the wall, no matter what? Or is it important to, say, to pay the salaries? And with, with an organization like the SABC, it's very, very real. And the thing is, as I've walked in over the last couple of weeks, it seems that there are a couple of works that are missing. And I'm wondering, have they been sold? Or have they gone into storage to protect them so that they don't get sold? Maybe there's a quiet little bunker somewhere that someone very quietly is putting. I don't know. And, and it does raise this question of, in a tough economic time, what is the art? I think it should stay. I mean, I'm, but, but that's me because if I can, you know, sell, Stephen, Valerie. I mean, and, you know, I have to now have a retort to Sean about calling me naive. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, my friend. I was born <laughs> in the Soviet Union. <laughs> okay, I understand. I've actually lived in an alternative paradigm. Uh, so capitalism is not an eternal truth. Um, and I believe that the issue of uh, corporate collections and collaboration is, is, uh, is, is, is part of the capitalist problem, right? One of the reasons... Uh, a lot of corporates are an abnormal problem. We have people, we have South Africa, and it is well known as the most unequal society mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. world. That is not, that it is not naive to want to change that. And so I believe that the, the actually the legitimate way to do it is for 
people who should be paying taxes to pay their taxes to be paid and for for the public institutions not to be under-resourced. And so you would legislate for having a dedicated amount of, of tax or budget allocated to culture in a way that people can enjoy uh, public institutions for free, that, uh, that museums are not short-budgeted and priced out of the market when acquiring and are able to, subsidize, uh, to be proactively acquiring important uh, public collections. There's a very good reason. Like A lot of people have money who shouldn't have money. If they were paying the taxes as they should, go, they wouldn't be the super rich. So I'm, 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 I'm very comfortable with taxing, taxes being an important vehicle towards uh, achieving equality and, and and supporting public institutions and public access art. to art. So, yeah, that's, yeah. you know, I'm a Marxist, yes. <laughs> okay, anybody else want to jump in? At, I, I, I'm not seeing much, but it's, yes, Anthea. Oh, just, no, you don't, there's another one here. I was going to say, just toss it and see if we could get it there faster. Thanks. Sean, you want to like? I just wanted to address what um, your comment, Michelle, about choosing between art and salaries or choosing between, mm. you know, it goes to a broader... Sorry, I think this mic's... That's good. We hear you. Um, it goes to a broader question that comes up perennially about whether we should have art or public services. And I think it's important that we see beyond that either or mm. um, situation. And I think it's also important to recognise who the people are who are dealing with this conundrum again and again. It's it's those of us who are privileged and in a position to decide who else gets to see art. So typically this debate circulates amongst people who've already decided that they want both. Um, I think the whole debate is flawed really and, and that art shouldn't be the thing that the privileged few decide over on behalf of everybody else. So I always remember that. Um, I agree. Oh, thank you for the little bit of applause. Um, LB Sachs was, I remember that he said, you know, one of the um, major sort of cultural weapons of apartheid was to propose that art was only for white people. And I think if we're honest, we we still treat it as something that's really the province of um, privileged people in South Africa. So. Look, I have to say, um, I have to, I'm with you, with the SABC. But that's because I work there and I know who works there. I know, like, who needs to work. Yeah. And I know what the role of a public broadcaster is as well. And if we don't fight for that, we're going to be really, really lost, is my personal opinion. So fight for the SABC because there are people doing amazing things there without you even realising it. Thank you. Snap, snap. I can't really see. So I want to say, is Zen Marie in the... In the oh, yes? Oh, did, you, did you do a bit of a change there? Yes, like you guys are so fast behind the scenes. So you see, this is a machine that's working while you all sit here and drink your coffee and think about popcorn. Rulof, it's you. <laughs> I'm Rulof on the outside and Zen Marie on the inside. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, where's Valerie? I mean, you can be anybody you want. Liesl, you you told us it's Rulof, so like, yeah, you know, like, huh? I don't mind being Valerie. 
I want. I want for. I want for an art world. I want for an art world that that isn't a world. Um, I want for an art world that isn't a world that can be contained. I want for an art world that isn't a world that can be contained and spun around on a steel axis on the walnut desk of a sentence CEO. I want for an art world. I want for an art world that isn't a world that can be sold to the highest bidder at the summer sale of an auction house. I want for an art world that isn't a world that can be bought and chained and put on display like a Khoisan woman in a French boudoir. I want for an art world. I want for an art world that can't be caught, that can be raided and profited by display like the Benin bronzes in the British Museum. I want for an art world that isn't a world that can be paid for posing as a primitive black man like the hyena men for a white lensman. I want for an art world that isn't, that can't, and that can pretend to fucking care, to give a damn, to reach out a hand, and not only when the photographs are of other people's pain and gets framed and sell like hotcakes at an art fair. I want an art world. I want an art world that is a world where art can be unsafe, where art can be safe, artists can be safe to say, to pursue, to tell, to show, to paint, to perform, and to build an art world. And I want an art world that is a world where artists can be safe to work, to make work, to sell work, to make a fucking living without prejudice, without persecution, and without having to turn a profit, without having to beat out a hundred other fellow artists' proposals for some European foundation's favor, without having to pray to the fucking art gods to show in the next Big Six Art Gallery summer show. I want to say in fucking Cape Town, but... I want an art world where the first world a child utters is magenta. <laughs> when the first thing a child learned is that mixing magenta and cyan makes magic. Uh, where a child learns to do math by looking at the stars and imagining she is one of them. I want an art world where the artworks, artists self-organize where the artists network with each other, where the artists run the show. And how many artists are in the audience here today? Where the art reviews, one fucking power, hundred counts only artists. I want an art world where an artist gets paid the whole sales amount into her bank account. Fuck your 50-50 sharing after-cost payout model.
if you're lucky, in 30 to 90 days from invoice. I want an art world where an artist... Oh, sorry. Okay, fine. I was compromising there. But she will negotiate her slice of the secondary market dealer's profit pie without an art explanation. But the white male director of the auction house, this is how things work in sight. I want an art world without keys. I want an art world without entry fees. 200 rand to get into an art museum. I want an art world without barriers to entry. I want for, and I want what I call an art world without walls. And that's my... Whoa. I, want so I started out shaky because this is the first time I'm doing it, so forgive me for that. I want a world where every single child gets an art lesson from the time they go to school until the time they leave. I think I said that, yeah. Did you? <laughs> because I'm... Rudolf, do you want to briefly mention the... Sorry, I didn't really I because they wanted, you wanted pictures of our, of our faces and I just put that up instead of my face because I prefer that. If I can just quickly comment on Michelle's thing. Yes, where every child gets an art lesson that isn't given by the gym teacher and, you know, just given a photocopy to color in as something that's really not terribly important. Thank you. Rilof. I don't really want to plug this, but I will say the following. I think we need to look at new forms that isn't commercial, that isn't about producing art for sale, wrap, back, stack, ring it up, we'll deliver it to your front door. We'll even hang it for you. There has to be other ways of doing that. And I think that's, one of, for me, one of the main concerns. I know how money works and I know how it flows. We've got to open those taps and let them flow, let the money flow wherever it goes. Um, this particular project is looking for a way that's open-ended, where artists can participate, where there's no entry fees, anybody can enter. Um, it's not in a museum. Um, it is broad-based arts, uh, creative ideas that we're looking for in this particular project. Um, but you can go online and look, look sort of at the detail around that. But that's an ongoing question for me, is if it's not the gallery system, or the museum system, which is the same thing, then what do we do? How do we put our money where our mouth is? And what systems and frameworks do we put in place? And how are artists in control of that? How do we own it? Tamsin Blake, up next. Michelle. Sorry, can, Tamsin. Can we, can we ask a question? Yes. I mean, um, I agree with a lot of what Rulof's saying, but... To go back, if we take Valerie about remembering history, two or three years ago, a hashtag was weaponized, white monopoly capitalism. The story that, as it's being narrated now, is one that it was conceived in the London PR house, mm. and the blame is kind of attributed that way and to agents living now in Dubai. There's very little conversation about why that hashtag had such traction, why it still gets repeated, and also to some of the people that were implicated in it and that refuted and whose name is up and sponsoring socially engaged projects. You know, and 
this is the truth. I mean... Now, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about Johan Rupert and his family were at the center of the hashtag with white monopoly capitalism. And Ruloff's project is underwritten, or it's a collaboration with the Rupert Museum. And, I mean, you expressed a lot of sincere desires, but they, they sit at odds with a certain anger that is true. And if we go back to yesterday, where did that anger mm. manifest itself, it came to On speak. Yeah, but it came to speak at a certain location. Right of reply, Rulof. I think you have to speak to Johan Rupert on that, and I think he will answer you on that as well. I can't speak on behalf of him or that family. What I can say is that if we're talking about corporate money or family money or trust money and how that can work for the arts and we can open that tap and that collaboration, this is a way of doing it outside of the system as we're criticizing it at the moment. So, Sean, do you want to respond? No. I mean, there is something that you could put into this pot and think about as well. If we go back, remember way back, the Brett Kibble Awards, and of course the resistance, understandably, to artists entering the award, and yet artists did. And the question I suppose you have to then ask as well is what are the choices that artists are making? Certainly they're making some of those choices under duress, certainly they're making those choices because they don't have any other options. But it goes back to how we are empowered because we need to be able to say no, I don't agree, or yes, I'm prepared to go that route. You have to give people that choice, surely. I don't know. I'm just opening that as a... But you're welcome to respond. There is a mic here. Yes. You've just said something about the choices that artists make, and yes. I'd like to say the choices that artists have. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. And are we, I hope someone's made a note of that one as well. Tamsin. Thank you. Um, we were asked to respond to some questions, and the first two and the second one I thought were really interesting. So it was, how do we, what do we mean by change? Uh, how do we define the art world? And what would we like to see as change? For me, uh, very often, change is defined as something that happens. And the problem I have with the definition of change happens is that that puts it outside of ourselves. So change is a thing that we have to respond to. It is something that we have to shift with. And therefore, it's not something we're in control of. It's not something we're directing. It's something that we are shifting shifting our rudder to, to try and steer and be swept along with. And when I think about what the art world is, I'd like to say as a thought, to me it's a little bit like a country. But the art world is a country led by a dictator. And my proposal, I would like us to dethrone this dictator who is ruling our art world. And that dictator is fear. And it's, 
that dictator has a grip on this art world on, on so many different levels. And I'm creating, I'm what some people say at the sort of forefront of this fearful change thing in the digital space where the physical art world is somehow being disrupted. But it shouldn't, imagine if we could face that change or face that dictator in a different way. If we could get together and say, I'm not going to be swept. I'm not going to have to try and find my path in the face of this change, whatever those changes are, but I'm going to decide what I want it to be. And I don't think we do that enough. That's why the art world is so coded. And we're all trying to fit into the code. We're all trying to be accepted by adopting the code and hoping we're doing it right. Um, when I, after I left studying fine art, I became a journalist, a photojournalist, and I worked for World Vision. And I met a very, very interesting couple there. They came from the States. The wife of the couple had been offered a job at World Vision. So she came on a two-year contract. Her husband came with her because he wanted to stay with her. But he didn't have a job. And he didn't have any sort of qualifications on paper. And he arrived at our World Vision headquarters one day and he said, I would like to work here. I'm quite good with computers and this is what I can do and I will work for free. And so the World Vision CEO, quite taken aback, said, well, um, yes, of course, <laughs> we can always do with the help. We'd love you to work for free. And it gave him some space and John got busy. And so he was automatically part of the, part of the work team. But what was different about John's day-to-day -day job or work there was he had swiftly bypassed the normal code and rules of becoming an employee at any place. He had not had to apply, therefore he had not had to fulfill the wishes of what somebody had put out there is this is what we want you to do. He had not had to present a CV that had down on paper what qualified him to do what we wanted him to do. He just came with a set of skills, a personality, and a drive, and a desire, and started working. And quite soon, John became indispensable. And the powers that be started getting together and saying, we're at risk here because he's working for free. He's his own man, and we need him to continue doing what he's doing so well. So we'd better approach John and ask him if he would kindly accept payment. <laughs> so that he can be formally employed and we can feel a little more secure. And so that's what happened. And they stayed, John stayed employed for the two years, did a fabulous job, so did his wife, Christine. And they have traveled the entire world that way. One of them gets a job and the other goes along to the same place and says, I want to work here, I'll do it for free. They've worked in Vietnam, they've worked in Antananarivo, they've worked everywhere. And sometimes it's John and sometimes it's Christine getting the job. And that really made me think about 
that that idea of just bypassing those codes, those rules, those um, mm. ways of being accepted. And uh, that was my thought. Dethrone the dictator of fear. That's what we need to do. Sure. Thanks, Tamsin. Tamsin Lovell. Sorry, Tamsin. I called you after an artist for a moment there. Patika, would you like to come out? Would you like to stand up? Would you like to sit? Prof. Patika and Tuli. I gave, I gave up the title of a professor when I realized that I belong to a class of uh, people without titles, like Jesus Christ, Karl Marx. But, uh, forgive me. <laughs> it's just a biographical detail. Actually, I am not going to say anything. I agree totally with what uh, Tamsin has uh, said. So when I speak, I'll answer the questions that are addressed to her. Is that okay? Yeah. That are addressed to her. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> okay, so does anybody have questions for Tamsin? Because Prof is going to answer them. Seriously. Anybody have questions around fear that Prof is going to answer? Okay. Uh, it's, just, it's not a very easy uh, you know, thing to, uh, uh, you know, to talk about. And You talk and I'm going to give you a mic. Oh, yeah. I got it. Uh, I mean, for me, the way to change the world is to adopt the Melrose Gallery uh, you know, art model. That is going to get about 90 artists from the remotest places where people do not have any hope or any dream and put them at the same time with everybody uh, uh, you know, else. And when you also look at uh, the, our cities in South Africa, Centen is not like Melrose. Melrose, wherever you turn around each and every corner, you have to be aware of that uh, uh, you know, art is there and art exists. Not just simply uh, locked up anywhere else. And I also agree that uh, in a capitalism is not a very good one. It's very uh, annoying sometimes when people define capitalism. There are collections in there. When somebody, per, per, you know, wrote a book about Zuma, Zuma's people went to all the bookshops and bought all those books and put them in a collection somewhere else. How am I? I'm suspicious that the people who got in all this art that people do not see that are hiding in there, they really hate art. So maybe the best way to, to, to change art is to pressure these people to release all of these arts and to build more museums for people so that even ordinary children from government schools, not only from uh, 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 you know, uh, modern C schools and private schools, uh, you know, should be put that art over into those uh, ordinary people right up at the bottom. Thank you. Whoops. Out of the vaults of these institutions. Uh, I mean, if one, I'm going to talk about how the corporations 
in South Africa started collecting art, or whatever you call it. Uh, then it was called township art, transitional art, whatever you call it. And you look at the major financial institutions, they all got collections, but there is no access for public to go and see this art, to see this art. Or there is no way that uh, we can, that they can communicate what they have through publications, because even the publication that they have, I mean, I can cite uh, one of the major banks, that has got a catalog that you can never ever find. So yes, and uh, what also exacerbates the situation is the current, uh, the, the, how the city geographic, I mean, how the city is situated, we've got the south, which has got the political power, and then we've got the north, which has, which has got the financial power. But the south has failed to convince uh, the corporations in terms of the social justice philanthropy so that they take out these artworks that they're hiding, because as Professor Pitika said, those are the people that hide, that probably they hate art, or they want to hide history. So yes, uh, just to touch what I was saying, I agree with that, that we need to have a situation where, I mean, you can see there's a little bit of proliferation of uh, private uh, institutions. You've got Javits, you've got uh, the one in Cape Town. So if all of these institutions in the city of Johannesburg you can count them financial institutions. One day, they can open up one museum and take all of those artworks that are hidden so that the, uh, the public can have access to them. That's all I need to say. Yes, um, I'd just like to just point to something that I feel at the moment is the elephant in the room. And I'm not a PR agent for corporations, but I do want to say from my personal experience, there are some corporations that do a very good job about taking their collections out to the public in different platforms or on different platforms. I'm also very practical. It is uh, both logistically and financially an incredibly expensive um, undertaking for a corporate. But putting that aside, for me, the elephant in the room right now is we talk about our museums. I work in the museum sector, and it is, and I've worked with every museum in the country, I think with the exception of Polokwane, and it is absolutely appalling, and this is one of my personal plucks, absolutely appalling to see how shockingly our museums are supported. And here we're not talking about white monopoly capital, the capitalists, the banks, the whatever, whatever. We're talking actually about government. And we haven't mentioned government. And we are taxpayers. I would imagine most of us in this room are taxpayers. Our taxpayers' money goes to SARS, where it gets handed over to our department, which is the Department of Arts and Culture, Sports, arts to be and culture, used for our sector. And when I look at the shocking way, and this is a personal opinion, that the department, using our taxpayers' money, does not support our museums, it is something that sends my very low blood pressure right through the roof because that's where we should be having the support. Why does the Pretoria Art Museum not have had an acquisitions budget for more years than I can think of? There were times they had no telephone. JAG, having sat on the board way back, there were times when JAG had no paper to print anything on. That is the responsibility of our provincial government, 
you know what the collection looks like in the Gauteng Provincial Government offices, our national government, to use our taxpayers' money for the benefit of the people of which we are all a part to do the programs, support the programs, get the kids from all the schools, townships, I don't like this township, whatever, whichever school from wherever into those museums with courses. When you try and approach to say we've got a program, we can do this and that, it's like drawing teeth and you've just about got to give your blood before you get anything to try and support programs. So personally, that's just a bit of a emotional response. So it's an me. emotional response, but, uh, but, but what I'm interested to know is what does one do? You don't have to answer that right now. Um, what we see now is that the Department of Arts and Culture is now the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture. So arts have moved this way again, and it has yes, happened. Yeah. But the question we have to then answer is, what do we do? Social activism. Do you do I, it? I have done it, and I do it. And yesterday, we saw certainly women social activism, but literally citizens getting out there and saying, this is not okay. This I, is what we want, which we're entitled to. I agree, but in the context of, uh, of South Africa, and we come from a very painful past, we are still hemorrhaging from the impact of cultural boycott. The very same people that you expect that they should put money to the arts, they've never had museums or galleries where they come from. They don't even understand the importance of taking one quarter of a million to go and clean a Picasso. That is the role that I think should be done by the corporations. So some time ago, Professor Pitika probably was part of that delegation. There was a conference in Botswana called Culture in, in, in another South Africa. That, to me, I thought we will be redressing the impact. Because remember, the cultural institutions here were meant to, to, to keep status quo. Hence, you see, all the museums do not even have a collection of uh, black modernists. Okay? And it's the same institutions. It's not the government. It was the government of then that started to rewrite South African artistry, which is flawed on its own. I give an example of someone like Mangoba who was already exhibiting in the 20s, or John Moll, that we don't even know about, okay? And there was recently, I'm gonna jump into the recent uh, exhibition that was called Black Aesthetic, which was never really reviewed by the public here. That, to me, is very, very critical that you should look at. The government people, they are, that is cultural Chernobyl. They don't know absolutely nothing about the arts. I worked within the city of arts. The first time, one of, I won't even mention names, they didn't know who is Gerard Sikod. Okay, mm. so forget about them putting money to ads. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I want to put a... Can I, okay, Patika, and then I'm going to put a button in this because there's something that we need to move on with with regards to... I see Stephen yeah. shaking his knee, making him nervous. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but then, shall, uh, I mean, very, very, very seriously, if we do not actually realize that uh, we do not live in uh, Western modernism. They are parallel uh, mm. in the modernisms. That's why when we talk about uh, you know, collaboration, it seems a totally new idea. And yet in indigenous societies, collaboration is there. Uh, uh, you know, sculpture does not go alone. It goes with painting, with dance, with, uh, with all of uh, you know, these issues. We are trapped now in, uh, in an art sense with uh, a, a Newtonian uh, a dichotomy instead of moving to the quantum world of interconnectedness, interrelationship, and interdependencies, only then can we be able to put uh, you know, art you know, right there for everybody else to uh, enjoy. We have got to 
look at who we are and where we are heading for and, and not to follow on somebody else's trace. So, nice. We start in the center with the private and the personal. Yeah, you see, the individual. All along, it's us, black, you know, us, in the territory. We have learned very well to use the territory as a center. Right, I want to raise five points that are coming up. We've mentioned elephants in the room, but I want to say the points that are coming up are government. All right, that's a big question, and it's not a question that any of us here in our individual capacity can answer. But it is a question as a taxpayer how we answer it and what we do. Does it mean that we have to go and position ourselves as citizens in different ways? That's the first one. The second one is the public sector, which is linked to government. The private sector is something that's come up. It links to the question of white monopoly capital, but it also, if we're going to look at the famous ecology, it also links to the idea of philanthropy. So how do we resolve that question? Do we resolve it or do we simply move it on? The third one, and so obviously the one I'm most interested in, is this idea of media. What is the role of the media in this process of discussion and engagement? Is the media at fault? Does the media silence itself? Certainly um, one of the issues I know that the National Arts Festival has had over the last year is that they are less and less and less getting journalists because there are no more art journalists. They're not being paid. They do not get into the process of going to a festival to be rigorous, to give that idea, which I thought was so good, which Valerie was talking about, about really critiquing the sector. And we've heard some great critiques right here in the last uh, whatever many minutes. I do like this idea of fear because I'm a very fearful person, ironically. And the other one I wanted to just briefly mention that could maybe be sort of slashed or torn or just pulled apart a bit more, is this idea of the museum and how people get to museums. It's all very well to say, yeah, people must go to museums, but if people have to travel hugely long distances that cost them an enormous fortune, they're not going to spend that money to get to the museum. They're just not going to do it. So we need to start finding ways of, um, I think it was Rulof said, a museum without walls. Like we need to really need to look at what could that be? What could that look like in a blue sky world? So... Dade, he's up, he's next. Would anybody like coffee, a coffee break, a coffee? Do you all feel like you want to grab a coffee, not you want to dive right in? It's Hello. yours. Hello. Okay, I'm going to use my five minutes very carefully. I'll start by arranging. The mic. <laughs> thought it should be placed some hello yeah no continue okay and start at now okay so uh, the I'm not a poet like Rolf um, or an academician or a writer like Sean I'm an artist who became a dealer by necessity because I come from a country which uh, is uh, like a quarter or even less than what South Africa is and South Africa has art problems. So 
How do you change the art world in two hours? I start with what is there to change or what is the problem? In my world or in my understanding, the problem is uh, there's a lot of laziness. The artists are lazy. The galleries are lazy. Curators are very lazy. <laughs> uh, because there's a lot of uh, substandard art that is glorified, and the world misses out on very important art. So, <clears throat> so um, how do you, because it's about changing it, so therefore that is something we want to change. I think that we should uh, conduct a massive education at all points, and uh, education should go to the artists on how to realize their highest potential. A lot of times artists make something and the gallery says, oh yeah, that's fantastic, let's put it, and then we put the price up, it goes to the auction, and then the artist stops because the gallery wants to continue selling that thing that we thought that was doing very well. So the artist dies. So it means that... Uh, you know, we need to kind of uh, help the artists to play, explore, do all sorts of things just to be, get their highest potential. The other thing is that we need to train the gallerist to uh, the gallerist's eye to see what is excellent. A lot of gallerists are not uh, don't have the eye that sees what is excellent. <laughs> because they are bored housewives or rich, I don't know, collectors that become bored and so, I don't know, or, you know, so like somehow people lose that eye that looks at what is excellent because we want to see the best so that we, we, we everybody can follow up in that line of how do I become the best, how do, how do I get to that platform? And uh, lastly, fantastic, it's the curators. They have to, or oh, oh, critics, so, but mostly curators here, they have to, to, to be trained to find the hidden gems. Uh, it's sad that when you go to a, uh, another, in Europe now, there's all these African exhibitions, like, oh, Africa. And then you go there and it's like, this artist, that artist, that artist. And then you go to another thing, blah, 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 Africa. This artist, blah, 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 museum, blah, blah, blah. there's this artist. So you end up with the same, same, same because the curators are lazy. And, and yet they could just go into a country and go into those nooks and talk to all sorts of people and not go to the cocktails at the blah, 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 the mesh, blah, 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 to talk with the blah, blah, blahs about the other blah, blah, blahs, and 45 seconds. So that's how I would try to change the art world, some kind of education at art fairs. At, there should be an education on all those fronts here at the art fair, at everything. They should, that's why there's education programs. <laughs> so they should, they should educate. How? What do you think makes a great gallerist? A great gallerist... I'm just throwing this answer because... Because <clears throat> you've still got 16 seconds. Yes. Uh, a great gallerist should be uh, attentive 
should have the eye to see. And the eye is not this, it's inside, to see what, what it is that that person has to offer the world, and the artist being, that person being the artist. To be able to see the artist and say, this artist has something special, and the world must see it. So it's, it's a bit complex in a way. And but allow it's the journey a feel. as well. What? And allow the journey to keep going. For yes, the and then when they find that thing, they, they assist the artist. Uh, I mean, art galleries take a commission, in my view, not because they want to get rich, because I think if you want to be rich, you, you shouldn't be selling art. It costs a lot of money to sell art, and there are no guarantees. But galleries take a commission to be able to support the, 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 the growth of that artist. Mm -hmm. So if the gallery is not supporting the growth of an artist, if they are bringing them to the fair, sell their work, get money, bring them to another, and they are not supporting or, or funding or you know, flying them all over the world to see great things, then they are not doing their job. And I, I, I ask any gallery here, please bring your artists to the art fairs, pay for it, they'll pay you back. When they see, they become, wow. Mm. Fantastic. Thank you. Daddy, thank you so much. Which means I'm going to hold on questions because I just don't want us to run completely out of time, which means we get to the curator. We want to know, are you the curator that is digging in the deepest, darkest areas and finding art? Which one? Is it slow enough? Okay, Put so it a little bit closer just because they are recording. Oh, okay. Um, I will use notes so that, yeah, I don't, I don't ramble. Um, but I think I'll, I'll move away from speaking as a curator and I'll speak as someone that's just interested in how we move through the world and our, just our general living practice and then how that then bleeds into what we choose to to give and, and, and give of ourselves to, to the various, yeah, various outputs. Um, so these are images of um, burrows that um, bubbler um, crabs create. And so I was thinking about the art world in this context, and I think this has been really, uh, this has been mentioned, Valerie actually mentioned this as well, of this idea of we all have this perception of a center, right? Um, but I think it's just that, it's a, it's, it's a perception that we have. And um, in a way, the center is not owned by anyone, it's just colonized by many. Um, and so for me, it's, it's, it's a really important practice to always come back to this idea of, you know, all these tiny particles, subatomic sub kind of particles that exist really mean nothing unless they are in relation to the whole. Um, and so when I think about this question around what is change? How do we instigate change? Um, are we change makers um, within the art world? And, and, and you know, um, I, I think a lot about the fact that change is actually a really simple practice. It's a, a practice of like as simple as breathing. So it's taking something in and then releasing, right? Um, and so again, it's, it's owned by no one. It's kind of a universal practice that we share. Um, it happens in the quiet moments. It happens in consciously, unconsciously. Um, and I think it's something that, uh, again, Tamsin mentioned this as well. 
it, it's an inner working versus something that has to be acted upon or moved with. Um, and so Fatima Manisi, who's a, who, who's a Moroccan uh, um, a writer, feminist writer, sociolo sociologist, was, um, speaks about how writing is a form of prayer. And for those who know me, I'm really into the idea of meditation and meditating upon your ideas um, and, and writing almost manifestos that are universal in the way that they can be implemented. And so they have, don't have to have, have anything really to do with the art world, but can be translated into our various practices. And so I, I guess I've, I've written something that I think in a way encompasses that. Um, and it, this one, out of all the many that have come about and been scribbled down, comes from, it was inspired by a, uh, a woman's writing named Pat, Pat Montgomery, who writes about um, spiritual ecology and also who thinks about how we can be more in communication with plants. And I think that the idea of the fact that we are just visitors on this planet and we custodians of the planet, it's really important to then think about our practice as how do we, how can we be of in service of, of this planet and how can we be in service of the well-being of our planet because I think we're doing a really shitty job of that um, at the moment um, and historically as well. And so um, in this session and, and, and as we move forward, um, I would like us to think about how we can promote sacred relationships to push against the notion of restraint um, to occupy a space where we could acknowledge and honor sensitivity that brings us forth in our inter interdependence, um, to find ways to live in sacred and revolutionary relations through our practice. I would like us to think about how we can promote conscious evolution, where we actively explore how we as individuals in communion can move toward a, w a way of practicing that embodies mutually enhancing relations with life forms and or natural systems. I would like us to think about how we can promote collective wisdom, where we honor the essence of the world's collective wisdom and traditions as important sources of learning values of empathy and compassion, reverence and gratitude, and in so doing so, find tangible ways to awaken to a deeper wisdom and relationship to ourselves and in turn to others. I would like us to think about how we can promote engaging in mutual learning and experiences as we create a community that listens, a community that acts and speaks from the heart center, and in so doing, are informed and supported by one, one another's wisdom and compassion. I would like us to think about how we can promote conscious choice, where we recognize that our daily practices, even small, innate, habitual ones, have an impact on fueling the current condition in both generative and dismantling ways. I would like us to think about how we can seek to promote practices that lead to social justice, sustainability for all, and in so doing so, live in conscious, live with conscious intent. And lastly, I would like us to think about how we can promote inclusive, inclusivity um, that embraces the challenges and joys of diverse viewpoints and values mm. in all areas of our life to more fully accept and understand the depth of each other's experiences and the value of our infinite multiplicity, to really respect the rights of the individual, to flourish in their chosen expression, and in so doing so, foster and encourage the unique gifts in one another and within all life. So that's the meditation, the prayer, the desire. Sure. Nice.
Thank you very much, Kefilwe. That's an amazing. So, guys, here's how it goes. We've got 20 minutes, and we have four speakers. So I want to push through our speakers just so that we can close off with a couple of pointers that you believe are important for us to take forward, think about. I've already got a few in my mind, but I'm sure you've got loads. And, yeah, so our next speaker is, I think he's up, Zen Marie. And I have to say, Zen, I am a passionate, I love images of water and the loss and loneliness in those stills of yours uh, is quite extraordinary and I want to say thank you very much. Hello. Um, is that mic at a good distance? Maybe just go up close and personal. Um, yeah, so how to change the art world in two hours? I mean, my immediate response was this sounded too much like intellectual speed dating or TED Talk light. And I think that the kind of immediate thing was, well, actually, you need a lot more than two hours. And the trying to package this kind of huge debate into a little bit of time is, is part of the problem. We, we, we're so caught up in forms of mechanical time. And capitalism, yeah, produces time. It produces time of labor, time of love, time of existence, which have totally divorced us from any kind of organic time. You know, the time of the, the, the sun, the moon, our bodies, our natural rhythms. So there's something in that which is sort of like an impossibility. But besides being cynical, and there's a lot to be cynical about, because we, we have actually just destroyed the entire planet. We've destroyed ourselves, and we're destroying each other. And, and that's clear. I think that that's a point that we should probably start from and accept. And the possibility of then saying, well, how do you address that, for me, is the question. So it's, it's, it's not about changing the art world. I think it's actually about thinking about how the art world can contribute to the world at large. So, so there's a bigger question. For me, the, the idea of, of changing the art world in five minutes um, and even trying to come up with, with some kind of proposition is, is part of the problem. I think we, we, we are so reliant on forms of silver bullet solutions. What is the, the thing that's going to, to, to solve this, this huge intractable problem that we found ourselves in? That's, that's something that's so deeply embedded within the forms of false consciousness that we, we exist in. It's, it's a messiah complex. We're waiting for some righteous, charismatic uh, individual to come and give us the solution. So I'm not going to give you any of those solutions. I'm rather going to try and think about forms in which we could operate. Um, and, and I've written down some notes in terms of that. So I think it's not about silver bullets. It's not about easy answers. It's about sustained, committed, and hard work. And what that means is going to be different for everyone. The idea of a magic bullet is reminiscent of a deeply ingrained messiah complex. The idea of a magic bullet can be, or the, the, the idea of hard work in the art world, I think can be described as having two general kind of ideas, or the, or the, or the idea of art as potentially having some kind of impact or solution to offer can have two different ways of working. And these are largely between the idea of art being some kind of representational practice and art as being performative. So it's 
either art holds a mirror to the world and allows us to see what's going on and see what's wrong, or it can be that art imagines a future, imagines something else. And I agree with uh, Professor Ntuli that, that we should move beyond, I think you called it Newtonian dichotomies, um, or even um, forms of dialectical thinking or binaries. And in fact, these two things are not separate. The idea of, of holding up a mirror or being representational and the idea of performatively thinking and imagining a future, they're intertwined. It's about taking up the challenge to think about a larger set of intersecting, intersecting complexities and not working in siloed spaces. So it's about collaboration. It's about engaging. So for me, this challenge is actually a challenge against the cult of the individual the centrality of the ego, and a pandering to the solipsistic and selfish tendencies that we see all around us. And the art world inhabits this in a very particular way, in the way in which it celebrates thinkers, writers, artists, um, and, and, and creates commodities out of them that can be traded. So what I'm talking about, I think, means a reassessment of our investment in the structures that are around us and a divestment with the structures that we are, that we gain interest in, that we profit from. Importantly, this means embracing paradox and contradiction. So moving beyond the binary, the dialectic, or the, the dichotomy, but not in simple ways, in ways that, that actually take the time to sit in the muddy, murky, difficult spaces that we're in. Um, and from that, finding possibility of action and agency. So I'm not talking about some angsty withdrawal. I'm talking about something that is actually robust. I'm talking about embracing paradoxes and contradictions, being intensely critical of the abstract, philosophical, theological, or political structures. So there's this kind of like huge set of, 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 of things that, that I think we have to think about. And I think a lot of what, what we've been doing here has been thinking about that. But then also what, what especially the, the last speaker mentioned, still while doing that, still being able to inhabit the world with kindness, intimacy, and love. Mm. Now, now if, if that sounds romantic, it, it actually isn't because love is a terribly difficult thing. Um, and, 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 you know, it's been written about by many philosophers and the, the, the idea of the only true love as being something that is inherently unreciprocal, impossible to fully achieve. I think that that's something that, that if we think about how we embrace that, there's something quite radical about that. So to sum up, I think what I'm talking about, and this is the form that I'm trying to give to it, I'm talking about a joyous nihilism and a structured anarchy. And I think if, if we can find spaces like that from the very basic way in which we interact with people um, that we work with, with our families, and with the, the very difficult and seemingly intractable institutions that we, we inhabit or the power structures we inhabit, I think for me that, that gives us something. And I'll leave it there. Thanks. Perfect. I love the idea of organic time. It's just unfortunate that we don't have it. So, <laughs> Michael, I'm going to ask you to join us. Michael Mameo, designer, consultant, 
also described as an instigator, which I, I, I must say, I saw that and I was kind of relieved because I thought at least it's not a disruptor because I hate it. But instigator is a nice word. It's a beautiful way of saying it. Right. So five minutes, change, art world, notes, not enough coffee. Right. So I could talk about shifting. Get the man a coffee, someone. Coffee, coffee. Um, <laughs> the, the fuel of the art world. Uh, we could talk about. Oh, close to the mic, right. Um, is that better? Yes. Good. Um, we could talk about shifting conditions in the art market. We could talk about looking north for cultural approval. We could talk about the rise and the rise of the art fair and how everyone hates it but loves it and does another one. And you know, We could talk about that all day and intermodal, yada, yada. Mm. But really, change in the art world is... <sighs> we haven't got a clue what it's going to look like in tomorrow, in five days' time, let alone in five years, ten. What the models and the rules, the spaces... Uh, if any, uh, will be there. Um, and so that term as well, the art world, um, irks me. Mm. I mean, we, we all make marks, don't we? We all doodle. We are consumers of images. Uh, we speculate. We spectate. We make marks. And I think that's something we all do. I don't think we're separate from the art world. And I think that's a really kind of, it, it's, it's a patriarchal term that I think really needs to be challenged mm. as well. Um, and I think it's worse when, you know, the art world is this rarefied air of a select few. Um, that's pretty detestable. And it, and it still is that way. And I'm not sure how that's going to change. But change, art world. One, show up. <laughs> Just show up. Be present. Be there. Don't wait to be asked. You know, humans... Change needs human grease. And if you're not there, you're not changing. Two, be a critic. Don't be a cheerleader. Have an opinion. Have the wrong opinion. Change your opinion. Change others' opinions. Challenge and examine them. Be critical. But I think don't be a cynic. Um, yeah. The world doesn't need more cynics. The art world certainly doesn't need more cynics. Um, cynicism is the energy of change. A cynic never really changed anything. I think that's important to bear in mind. We're living, I think Valerie said, we're living in a post-truth world. Um, it's depressing. Um, we need honesty in our opinions more than ever. No more art talk, that art dinner niceties. Um, be real and generous with your criticism as much as you are with your praise. Be a critic. The art world needs critics. Africa needs critics. The, you know, African contemporary art won't wither and die with your criticism. It'll blossom. And if they don't let you show up, if they won't let you be a critic because you're too poor or you're not from here or you didn't go to the right school or you're a woman or you're black, number three, fuck them. And then create your own space. Do things on your own terms. And then be heard. Don't wait. Create equity that you want in the system. And if you're in your, the position to create platforms and create equity and create uh, space for those who can't, then bloody well do it and call people out who don't. And four, I think one of the themes that's emerging for me is, is, uh, is collaborate with other doers and do something. Get together, get drunk, have big ideas, <laughs> stupid ideas. You know, pick one and do it. We tend to idolize the singular rather than the collective. And that needs to stop. 
I think, in the art world. We, we work as a collective and, 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 and truly collaborate, I think, is something special. So then look, look, my, you know, the four points is show up, be critical, fuck them, uh, and collaborate. And then there will be the change that you want to see in the art world, whatever that is. Thank you. Brilliant. As I say, fuck them all if they can't take a joke. And if they can, well, then you should definitely fuck them. Okay. <laughs> Admit it, ladies. You know what you're looking for. A man who can take a joke or a woman who can take a joke. All right, in Bali. Bali Chabalala, we have an artist on the stage. Right. Hi, everyone. I think so much has been said. Let me help you. I'm <laughs> electrifying, or you are. Yeah, a lot has been said um, about change and how to change the art world in two hours. And um, yeah, that's where I want to start. <laughs> and um, I think it's, 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 it's in, everyone knows how difficult it is um, as a female artist to navigate the art world as a whole. And to a certain extent, when you go, you know, when you're about 30 years old, they think, oh, well, She's going to get married and she's going to have kids and disappear somewhere to the mountains or countryside, I don't know. And um, these are some of the prevailing ideologies around female artists. And this is where I'm taking the stance from. So the art world, um, as it stands, I really like some of the previous speakers' comments about how to change the art world in two hours. Um, but to, to be precise, what happens is that it is still fueled by economic and political political forces um, and that goes without saying we've all just been mentioning and talking about um, about some of these factors um, but what I find is some of the problems that might need to be changed or that definitely need to be changed and um, I'm not going to propose any new ideas as to how to change the art world uh, because there are ideas that are out there but it's how to use those ideas to propel the change and, and speed it up. So, for instance, a lot of female uh, or young artists attempted to rather, you know, use um, galleries and museums as a gauge as to what to make um, because that is considered what will sell. And to an extent, that pushes one to, to make work that is generic, that looks like everything else. And whereas if artists were using, um, weren't driven by economic factors, what would they be making? That is a question that we always need to ask is, if you weren't been driven by economic factors, what would you be making? Um, and museums and galleries are driven by creating these big blockbuster shows that are gonna push or drive sales or draw more artists or people, patrons in, through the door. Um, and, and that's another shift that needs to happen. Um, and we're looking at, the economic factors, of course. Um, something that I just remembered, um, I had a lecturer in fourth year at BTEC when I was studying at TUT, Ariana, and she says, if you ever want to make anything significant or meaningful um, in the art world, uh, the first thing you'd have to do is consider where your, your funds would be coming from. She says that if you're a female artist or even an artist in general, you'd have to do one of three things. 
either marry a wealthy spouse, um, be a trust fund baby. So like have this huge backing from your family. Or the third thing was have a part-time job. So maybe be a teacher or a lecturer. And I find that's how you can also really create integrity in your work. Because if you're not driven by sales, then you've got time to curve what you're making. And there's another, um, an article that I saw that came out um, in Freeze um, just last year. Um, and an interesting comment by Adrian Piper, who was saying, you know, the most important thing is also is to identify what your aim is. Are you trying to be, you know, gain public approval um, or commercial success? Or are you trying to contribute to artist or gain art historical significance? And that is, that is the gist of the matter is that a lot of artists find themselves stuck in, 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 in gaining public approval and making all these sales that you never get to a point where you're making something that is going to change the world or change a viewpoint on what art is or what it should do in society. So what is my, my suggestion to this? I think um, because as a curator slash artist and, and what we've discovered is that I'm part of a collective called the Collective Untitled. And um, what we've done is that we put artists without gallery representation on art fairs. And I feel like that is a huge stepping stone in the right direction for a collective of artists who don't necessarily have a tons of money to back backing them to put them on, on, on art fairs. But collectively, it becomes easier to establish um, a formation and find funding to get yourself on those platforms. So my way forward uh, and how I would change artwork in, in two hours, I would recommend um, setting up collectives. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Right in time. Collectives and collaborations. Stephen Hobbs, guess what? You get to close the gig. I'm afraid so. Yeah. Liesl, I guess I'm going to do a hand gesture to prompt the slide. Uh, prepared this presentation in the context of um, a highly capitalized environment such as Santon, such as the two art fairs that we're experiencing and, and really the commodification of the art object. So I wanted to think about different ways of looking at um, uh, capital and, and how to um, place it. If we could have the next slide. I don't know how apparent that all is. I think I'm going to do this. Okay, so I want to quickly, I'm going to sp speed through this. So what have we got? Starting from the top left, uh, social capital. Um, our spheres of influence, who we know how we connect and who we can connect people to. Material capital, really just looking at the raw materials that we either work with or are surrounded by and the extent to which they can produce infrastructure. Um, what does that say up there? Financial capital. I mean, there are many manifestations of money and mon how money moves around, but I think we're constantly engaged, locked into a discussion around an exchange around goods and services. If we look at natural capital or living capital, um, minerals, plants, animals, and of course it speaks to a, perhaps a, a, a different context to the one that we're typically engaged in as artists or as, as cultural producers per se. Um, gosh, this is such a pity the slide is so difficult to read. Cool. The production of knowledge, who owns it, how we exchange it. It's limited in the field of exchange because typically it's always, always attached to an individual, but it's a very important 
um, producer in the conversation, I suppose. Then I think, um, yes, or human capital. The business of doing, actually making projects, doing projects, getting involved in the experience of starting, um, uh, uh, conducting, producing, resolving, and sharing. Uh, I beg your pardon? Spiritual capital, one that I perhaps align with least in the sense that I'm not a religious person per se, but certainly the role of spirituality and our connection between here and the universe has a, has, a, has a mindfulness that I think at the collective level has a certain agency and, current, uh, agency and currency. And then lastly, cultural capital, which essentially can't necessarily be owned by the individual. It is the collective, it is the community that owns that capital. So to the next slide. Uh, in the context of thinking about investment, perhaps, what is the, the thing, the idea, the project, the condition, the field, the circumstance? Next slide, please. So in my practice, we tend to, we, because there is more than one of us involved in the practice, tend to look at the field of operations and the, not so much ecology, but the ecosystem within which we can identify opportunity. If we can go to the next slide. So I think there are many. They don't necessarily manifest in a grid, but certainly it's about looking at the field in a different way. And really what we're trying to do, I think, in our work is connect the dots. If we can move to the next slide, please. And what is particular about the graphic representation of this is if you move your eye around the grid, certainly it works on my computer screen, is in a sense those dots tend to move as the eye tracks the grid. We can go to the next slide. This was prepared in collaboration with my brother Jason Hobbs, an information architect, who looks at the role that design plays in relation and creativity in terms of changing operations in the field of production. So I'm going to end it there for now and say thank you. <laughs> thank you, Steve. Okay, guys, here's the deal. We really have done two hours. It's been fast. It's been long. It's been up. It's been down. It is, as we said right at the beginning, a total tester to see if there is a way of doing this differently that is not simply a panel discussion. So there's a bunch of words that have come up um, over the last two hours, and we do, I'm, I'm terrified of taking your time. So would you allow me to go through the words quickly? Would that be okay before you go for coffee? I know someone said they're desperate for coffee, and I'm totally on with that. I thought joyous nihilism is an instructed anarchy, art ecology, an art world ruled by fear, getting humble, competitiveness and egos, the idea of playing and exploring the innovation of the artist, access, access, access to art, collaborations, working more closely with who we are in terms of the indigenous world, in terms of who we are culturally, and also potentially going back to the very deep sediment that is our ancestors as well. Um, the laziness, let's, not, let's be honest, the laziness, how hard do we really work? The, uh, the innovation that is required, gallerists and curators, what are they really expected to do and what do they do? Do they allow an artist to have a trajectory and play and take a journey? Social justice, conscious life, um, organic time. Brilliant comment. Uh, the idea of organic time is really extraordinary. Sustained, committed, and hard work. I mean, we, we constantly think, and, and, and we do see this sometimes where someone just thinks that they can, you know, that it just happens. It doesn't just happen. Work, 
Change is work. Actually, change is ongoing work. Futuring is ongoing work. Can we change the world through art? Yes. Now we know we're changing the question, and we are going to say, can we change the world through art? Whether we can describe it in two minutes. Collaboration again, collaboration again, not commodification. Someone mentioned the danger of binaries. I'm, I'm a real believer in that. I, I truly do not believe that life, anything in life is a binary. Not gender, not age. I mean, I, I, I truly believe in age fluidity. And I think that the more we start to think less of binaries and more of spectrums, there might be opportunities around that as well. Also, um, the idea of change as, as a form, as a form of, or the future as a form of a verb, futuring. So how are we futuring our world? And what does that really mean with regards to the art world? I think the four comments of show up and be present, absolutely critical. Be a critic. I'm afraid I've always been a bit of a cheerleader, so I felt a bit of a slap on the list there, wrist there, but I, I, I intend to be very critical now. Don't worry. Everything I write from now on. Watch. Watch me. Um, real and generous critics, though. Love the fuck them. And the fourth one, the idea of collaboration. So collaboration is a big one. Anthea's taken notes of all of this, and we are going to actually put it out and send it back to you and see if you want to add different things to it, expand on it, shift and change the idea, shift and change the conversation. Um, I'm sorry that there wasn't enough time to get into the thing, but two hours is a long time. And the fact that you guys have actually stood the ground, gone through like salmon going upstream is really, really impressive. And I want to just close off with this is how many of you have children? And Dila, I didn't even know that you were here. I thought you'd left again because of your children. My apologies. So, but this is a good thing. And Dila, are you putting, pinning up your um, children's artworks on the fridge or on the wall? You do. Everybody else, you're doing the same. At some point, you put it on the fridge. I need the good ones. Well, the, well, here you go. So already, but you still put them up. So the thing we need to really think about with this is that when we put our children's artworks on the fridge, what we're actually doing is we're demonstrating to the rest of the world what creative children we have. We're putting it up there for people to see. My question is, why, as adults, if we can do that as with our children, why can't we do that with our adults? And I think the time has come for us to really fight back on that and say, our artworks represent our health. They represent who we are. They represent where we're going in much the same way that if your child drew something with red eyes and you might be thinking, oh, maybe there's a problem here and let's think about what the child is saying about me, what I've been doing, nevertheless, you know what I mean. But, but I'm being serious. I think that it's time for us to say, let's take them just off the fridge and let's put them everywhere else as well. So to the artists, the gallerists, the journalists, the people that make that happen, I want to say thank you very much for being part of this. This conversation is recorded. We are going to try and pull out the salient points. We're going to send them back. You're welcome to put a line through it, change it, do something different with it. But we do want to pull those points from it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Latitudes, for being rocking. Thank you. We love you. We love you. And let's just say this. We can make that shift and change. So let's do it. Thank you to all the speakers for your diverse and engaging perspectives and to Latitudes Art Fair for the opportunity to record and host this on Unframed. Please support Unframed by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Please share the episodes with your friends and networks and leave a review on Facebook or Apple Podcasts. 
Thanks for listening today. See you next time. Bye.